Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Tonight, the United States has a new president, and here in Connecticut, we want to know how you're feeling about the next few weeks and months. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Welcome to Inauguration Day, a Connecticut Public Radio call-in special. Tonight, I'm joined by my colleague, John Henry Smith. John Henry, good evening. Good evening to you, Lucy, on a day when everyone from our new president to Garth Brooks himself frequently invoked the word unity. I am so very pleased to be unified with you tonight as we deconstruct and debrief over what was it a very eventful day yes we were together for election night coverage that was a lot of fun john henry happy to be reunited with you once more now tonight we want to hear from you connecticut how are you feeling about the new president and the direction the country must now go here's the number to join us 888-720-9677 that's 888-720-WNPR you can tweet us at WNPR. Now, John Henry, besides taking listener calls for the hour, we're going to be joined by several guests. That is correct, Lucy. Adding copious amounts of experience and brain power to tonight's festivities will be Robert A. Sanders, the chair of the National Security Department of the Henry C. Lee College at the University of New Haven. We'll have Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford, and a little later, the politics reporter at the Hartford Current, excuse me, the excellent politics reporter at the Hartford Current, Daniela Altamari. She'll join us, too. Again, this hour, a chance for Connecticut residents to weigh in on the day's events. Tell us how you're feeling about this new presidential administration. Here's the number again, 888-720-9677. Again, find us on Twitter at WNPR. Now, this morning, 3rd District Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro was a guest on my show, Where We Live. Before she left for the inaugural ceremony, she noted the unprecedented security surrounding the event. John Henry, she talked about the lack of crowds following the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, but she also stressed the symbolism of this day. What is critically important about today is that the resiliency of our democracy. Uh, This is a a nation that stands strong, uh, and uh, uh, that is what we celebrate today, is the uh, inauguration of uh, President Joseph Biden and, and Vice President Kamala Harris. We wanted to start with Balasiku. I know you were watching the inauguration. What stood out to you? Did you feel like it was a celebration? Uh, absolutely, uh, Lucy, and also to my homeboy John. How's it going? Hey, hey, hey. that's right. <laughs> um, you Go know, Lions. certainly a, a very powerful day. I, you know, like many people, I was up at eight o'clock watching the president as he left. But you know, and then I watched the inauguration and watched all of the proceedings. I mean, I was struck by the idea that we. Now, at the age of 78, Joe Biden, someone who comes to Washington with over 50 years of governing experience as a senator and vice president who is now president of the United States. In some ways, Joe Biden is perhaps the most qualified person we've ever elected to be president. And it's a good thing that we actually have someone, one with his kinds of qualifications because the nation, as he you know, made the point during his speech, 
faces many, 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 many crises. You know, we've got COVID-19. We've got a crisis in our democracy. We've got a reckoning with racism and white supremacy. We've got economic calamity. We've got deep divisions along partisan lines. And we also have a right-wing domestic terror threat in our country. And so Joe Biden hopefully is the right person for this moment that we're in. There were things that really stood out in this speech to me. You know, a couple just quotes of him really struck me as quite powerful when he said, we have learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, and at this hour, democracy has prevailed. Another thing that really stood out to me was when he said, we must reject the culture where facts themselves are manipulated, even manufactured. And of course, what really rang with me uh, quite a bit was when he said, the dream of racial justice for all will be deferred no longer. And so this was a very powerful speech, as was already mentioned. A major theme of that speech was unity. And it was something he talked about and other speakers talked about. And it's just something we need at this moment and, and, and something that he described as an uncivil war. And he talked about being the president of unity and conciliation. And I think we really need that at this moment. Oh, indeed. And I think there are a quote he'll be remembered for, at least the one I remember is, my whole soul is uniting our nation. Do I understand we have a caller? And if so, let's yeah, hear let's it. Let's take hear the them. A couple of callers now. Uh, Tom calling from Manchester. Tom, what's on your mind? Yes, uh... I'm a African-American background, and I'm glad to hear um, President Biden's speech. What's on my mind is, um, can we come back to the center as Americans, and really, like you said, as a person that said, work uh, as Americans, but I'm just concerned with these rise of racist hate groups, number one, and also if you criticize the system, doesn't mean that you're un-American or canceling culture, and I'm hoping that we can go across class and ethnic lines, even with you know, white Americans may oppose Mr. Um, Biden to do the right thing, and we're all Americans uh, together. And um, I've lived through the civil rights movement. I've gone to college, but I'm never going to be anyone's second-class citizen. And I will speak out against racism. I've done my part where I live in Manchester, Connecticut, you know, over the years as a concerned citizen. And that um, I was born black and I died black, and I'm not apologizing for that, but I know I'm a taxpaying American citizen. And... Uh, deserve my voice to be heard and everyone else is in we agree to disagree. Um, I'm here to stay. I'm not going back to Africa and I'm not, uh, you know, uh, sucking up for, to anybody. I know who I am as a person. So I think we have to uh, understand. live up to the ideals of Dr. King and uh, make it a reality and not fantasy and uh, pull together. Thank I you. appreciate well, thank those you, sentiments. Tom. Yeah. Uh, Bilal, we heard uh, we were talking about this uh, moment. Uh, many people want to see our country unify, and that rhetoric is good to hear, but it's going to be pretty challenging for the Biden administration uh, to, to reach that, that common denominator with people. What do, you, what do you expect to see from the Biden administration in these first uh, weeks uh, to get to that point? Wow, the first weeks. How about the first years? This is certainly not something that the the new president will be able to solve anytime you know soon if this is not there is no quick remedy to these very deep divisions that we have in our country i mean you know when the murder of george floyd happened earlier last year it really brought to the forefront for a lot of americans just how deeply structural and how deeply rooted these problems of racism are in this country um and also when we saw that invasion of the capital 
being led by white supremacists who were being edged on by the president, um, people who carried the Confederate flag into the nation's capital. Um, what we've come to realize is that this is a this is a very deep and challenging problem. And so the president has his hands full in trying to address these things. And but I think you know one of the things he struck doing his speech was he said that this was a road he wanted to travel but he wanted to travel that road with us. And so this is something that will require all Americans to really be a part of trying to bring about that change. And so certainly he will do things. He has said you know, that he will lead on this issue. Kamala Harris, the first woman of color to become vice president will be someone who will probably be very outspoken on those issues. She's got her own issues around race as a former prosecutor. And, but I think, you know, the, this president really is up for the challenge in a way that I haven't seen in any presidential address. I think he said things during this uh, inaugural address that even Barack Obama did not venture to say about racism and about white supremacy. And just the look of that inauguration um, with the people who were there who are a part of it. And I think there's a real commitment and a real potential for some movement on these issues. Lucy, it sounds like he's Lal has seen our notes for this show. He's certainly striking some of the notes we talked about beforehand. And I think overall that uh, Joe Biden struck a very optimistic tone at today's uh, proceedings. I think he wants all of us to feel a bit of optimism. And we have someone on the line now who's feeling cautiously optimistic. Nick, are you there? I'm here. Yes, I'm, I'm actually very happy. Um, I think uh, with... President Joe Biden, the country will move forward in a very positive way. And um, after four years of being upset and knowing that Donald Trump was not a very good person deep down, I knew things were not going to get any better. I knew it from day one, whereas right now I know from day one, Joe Biden, he's got a good heart. He always has had a good heart. And we need someone like him to lead this country. Nick, I have a question for you. How do we unify? I mean, it, the people that, and from what I've heard it's so far this past week, some people are asking Joe Biden, how do you unify the country? Do, do you see a path toward unity given how, how uh, divided everybody seems recently? I think he has to address uh, the other party's concerns, the people that feel left out. He needs to say we're all Americans like he did today. And he needs to say that I will do everything for you as I would do for my own party, that we're Americans, we're not party first. If he does that and he reaches out across to the Republicans and they don't want to work with him, that's different. But if he tells them sincerely, I want to work with you, will you work with me? That's the only way anything will move forward. But I know he's going to try, whereas Donald Trump did not even make an attempt. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, for your comments here on Where We Live. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677. We're taking a look at Inauguration Day, but we want to hear from you, Connecticut, about how you're feeling about this new presidential administration. What do you want to see President Biden tackle first? Again, that number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Twitter, at WNPR. Uh, I know that uh, we want to talk more about some of the themes that we heard today and also these executive orders, John Henry, that uh, President Biden has signed. I think 
think, 15 today alone. Uh, but we also want to look at and take time to look at what we saw today and what did not happen. So many Americans in law enforcement worried about potential violence after January 6th. And so I wanted to bring into the conversation now our, our next guest, Robert A. Sanders. He's the chair of the National Security Department of the Henry C. Lee College at the University of New Haven. Robert, welcome to our show. How are you today? Doing well. So I know that you are former military, and so I want to get your reaction to uh, the amount of of not only law enforcement but military uh, that were in D.C. today uh, to make sure that this inauguration uh, did not turn into what we saw just two weeks ago. Well, you have to think about D.C. Uh, in perspective to today. So DC has on a regular basis, every day of the week, 27 different law enforcement organizations inside that small territorial area. Add to that 25,000 National Guard troops. And you have a sizable force to take care of what we saw last week. Uh, This as a national special security event, because of the special protectees and all of the other things that involve the transition of power in the United States required that show of force, particularly after January the 6th. We have to understand that our national security comes in a lot of different ways. And what Biden said today, which is an oath that everybody in the military takes to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, we just found out about the domestic Now, it's been there since 2006 when the first report came out about it, but it was pushed to the side because in in America, the concept of right-wing white supremacy was no way near the epic threat that foreign other international terrorists were deemed to be. Uh, We got warned about that several times. The last hearing that was held in September of 2020, uh, FBI Director Ray warned us again. We have failed to heed the warnings, partially during this last president's tenure because they were his constituents and friends. So that warning, of course, was going to fall on deaf ears. Uh, we saw the, the the reckoning for that on the 6th, uh, where people who say they support the police We're beating them with American flags, uh, beating them with fire hydrants, uh, fire extinguishers, uh, and trying to take their guns to execute them on their way to try to kill the president and the Speaker of the House. Yeah, pictures we will never forget. Uh, Robert, I'll ask you this. I mean, are you surprised that the much-rumored second wave of attacks on the Capitol, as well as capitals around the country, didn't actually materialize? Uh, Yes and no. Traitors generally are cowards, uh, and they're not going to take on real force uh, when they know that now they're on an equal or less than equal footing. The day they took on the Capitol Police, it was 1,600 versus 30,000. Not good that, odds. That, those odds went in their favor, uh, and they had planned for that attack with those odds in mind. Uh, 25,000 troops and 27 law enforcement agencies uh, in the Capitol is not in their favor. So that made the states a little bit more vulnerable. So my concern shifted a little bit from D.C. to state capitals uh, today, 
and tomorrow, quite frankly, because it's not over yet. They they had a victory. They they see that their mission can go forward to a certain extent. And uh, the ones who uh, were unmasked, they now they understand why their their parents, grandparents, and great grandparents wore hoods. Um, are now finding out that the media, the internet, uh, and social uh, connections around the world are going to put them in jail. Pelosi Ku, I wanted to get your response and what Robert just shared with us. I think Robert is absolutely um, correct. Um, I, like him, I was surprised, but then not surprised, given the level of security that you know was in Washington. And, and, and it, in many ways, I speak. I think it speaks to also the crisis that we face within our democracy. Um, this is not going to go away anytime soon. Trumpism is more than just Donald Trump. There is a, a deep corrosive problem within our society that we've got to address. It's always been there, but certainly these last four years, it has bubbled to the surface in a way that took a lot of people by surprise. You know, those of us who have parents who lived through segregation in the South and lived through, you know, that horror of growing up when white supremacy was unrestrained, um, got an opportunity to see those ideas and to come to the realization that there are many Americans in our country who believe that this country is a country for white people and that people of color and others are not considered full citizens, citizens of the country. And so, you know, in many ways, this is a fight, as I said earlier, that Joe Biden will not be able to defeat, um, you know, in a matter of 100 days. And this is something that we are going to be dealing with and, and, and fighting against for many, many, many years. We brought up the, the question of whether this new administration can unify the country. I wanted to share uh, an email uh, Eric wrote uh, before the show and shared with me. What Biden can do to unite us directly is almost nothing. He can't make people go to a different news source than they usually go to or make fake news go away or get people to think what they don't currently think or stop believing what they currently believe. I don't know why anybody would think that any of those things are possible in any direct way. What he can do, if he's lucky, is govern. Forging unity as of now with people who basically occupy an alternative reality is a non-starter. I wanted to leave it there. I thought that was an interesting comment uh, from Eric sharing with us about the direction our country will be moving forward. Uh, John Henry Smith, I know we've got uh, more guests to talk with, uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you um, and, and Robert Sanders uh, what you'll be watching in the next uh, weeks and months, Robert. Well, one of the things I'm going to consider is do we actually step past tribalism? Uh, understand what globalism is and look at our demographic changes as positive as opposed to negative. Um, we're going to need a, a country that decides that to step forward and compete internationally, uh, we have to fix our internal problems. Uh, these go back to the foundations of the, of the nation. They go back to the, the, the original sin that we talk about and they go forward to what America looks like tomorrow. Uh, right this moment, Americans, 18 years or younger are of color. The majority of them are of color. And in 2050, 2055, the majority of the rest of the country will be of color when you add in the different uh, races in the country. America's reality is coming. Uh, 
they thought they could stave it off with Donald Trump, immigration law, and other things, but that's not real. We have to get real with ourselves. So I'll be watching the, the House, the Senate, and uh, the states to see if they're going to get real with themselves, understand what's really happening in our country, and embrace it. You, you would rather have that young, brown young man or woman embrace America, love America, do what I did, pick up a weapon if you have to, and serve the country against enemies from foreign shores versus domestic ones. Well, I see what you're watching. I'm watching the clock, and you told me that you have a witching hour to uh, meet. So as the chair of the National Security Department of Henry C. Lee College at the University of New Haven, of course, I guess you're not surprised out there in Radio Land that Robert Sanders has to go teach a class. <laughs> but we really appreciate you fitting us in here tonight, Professor. My pleasure to be here, and uh, go president, go VP, take us to the next place. Uh, it's a godsend. We need it. And... Uh, God bless America. All staying right. with us, staying with us tonight is Bilal Sekou, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford, and we're here to take your calls too. What are your thoughts on this new presidential administration, and what do you want President Biden to do in the next several months? Here's the number to join us: eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's eight 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 seven two zero WMPR, or find us on Twitter at WMPR. Coming up, we highlight some more of President Biden's inaugural address, and we take a closer look at late-breaking developments in the last hours of the Trump administration. This is Inauguration Day, a Connecticut Public Radio call-in special. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and you're listening to Inauguration Day, a Connecticut Public Radio call-in special. I'm joined tonight with my colleague, John Henry Smith, and the inaugural festivities are continuing even at this hour, John Henry. Yeah, Lucy, I've got to say about the day that we witnessed, this day reminded me of the days and weeks following 9-11 and the Boston Marathon bombing and other attacks that sort of shook us like the Capitol riot did. So many of the speeches struck a tone of exalting American democracy's resilience in the face of uh, what we can call an existential crisis. And so many seem to be saying the Capitol riots tried to break democracy, but it failed. And I thought that was a very powerful theme today. It was a theme many Americans needed to hear. We want to hear from you tonight. Were you watching or listening to the inaugural address? What stood out to you? What do you want to see the new administration tackle in the next few weeks and months? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. Again, it's 888-720-WMPR. You can tweet us at WMPR. Now, PBS NewsHour is offering live coverage of the Presidential Inaugural Committee's Celebrating America program that wraps up the events of Inauguration Day. You can watch that streaming at ctpublic.org slash inauguration. And as a reminder, with us tonight is Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. You can tweet him at at Bilal Siku. And coming up, we will hear from Daniela Altamari, politics reporter at the Hartford Current.
But again, we're here tonight to hear from Connecticut residents to weigh in on the day's events. That number again, 888-720-9677. Now, before we turn to some audio from uh, Joe Biden's inaugural address, uh, John Henry, I think we've also heard from a caller in Lebanon. Yeah, a bashful caller who didn't necessarily want to be on the air, apparently. But uh, we understand what the caller said. And what, what the caller said from Lebanon was, quote, I'm not political, but I'm so relieved Joe Biden is president. I grew up an army brat and have lived in other countries. There's no backup country that's quite like this one. I think Joe Biden can lead the country. That's that's a very interesting way of put it, putting it in, in, in a time in, in the world where you know the Jeff Bezos of the world are trying to find a backup planet like a colonizing the moon and things. Uh, but, yeah, this guy is saying that really America is all we got. We better make the most of it. We talked about some themes that stood out to you earlier, uh, John Henry, but what else about this address from Joe Biden that you think Americans are uh, taking time to think about in terms of of not only how we want to see our leaders act in Washington, but also how we live each day in our communities? Yeah, I thought Joe Biden, he uh, he apparently had some points that he really wanted to hit, and he systematically went down the row and hit them, I would say, from outside looking in, it looked like he hit them all. You know, in his inaugural address, President Biden mentioned uh, some of the problems that the country has been facing, the greatest hits of 2020, we can call them, the pandemic, the economy, climate change. But he also mentioned something else. Let's play that clip. Political extremism white supremacy, domestic terrorism, that we must confront and we will defeat. I thought the fact that President Biden mentioned white supremacy very specifically speaks to what Bilal spoke to a few moments ago, that, you know, it's been out there for a few years. Various sources have been trying to tell the people in power that white supremacy is a real, real threat, not just to Uh, people of color, but really to the survival of this nation. And the idea that with all the other troubles facing the United States, that President Biden was careful to lump white supremacy in there with the pandemic, with the economy, might be an indication that someone in in, in the White House and in the positions of the highest powers in this land understands now that white supremacy is a real threat. Bilal, Mm -hmm. what do you think? I absolutely agree with you. I think in many ways, Kamala Harris will probably be a leading face on on this issue for the administration. Um, You know, again, you know, the protests we saw during the summer of this year in the middle of a pandemic um, were a, a really a historical and important moment in the history of our nation. One of the things that I was struck by, and I've said this before with um, on Lucy, to Lucy on her show, is that one of the things that really struck me about this moment was the recognition by so many white Americans that, you know, the claims that African-Americans and other people of color have made about, for example, police violence, right? That, you know, in many ways people would say, you know, uh, you're exaggerating. It couldn't have happened that way. Racism in law enforcement isn't really a problem. And now what we see and what we saw when George Floyd was murdered was that racism and uh, police brutality and racism in law enforcement is a problem. And as we saw from, you know, these protests that took place and this invasion of the Capitol, 
we saw uh, military personnel, we saw police officers and others who were also a part of that crowd. And so we've got to root out you know, these officers who are in law enforcement, we've got to root out this problem in the military. And my sense from that speech today is that this is something that Joe Biden takes very seriously. This pandemic really exposed the uh, problems that economic and racial inequality create in our society in terms of the impact it has, it has had and continues to have on communities of color. And so, uh, as I said before, the president has got you know quite a task in front of him if he's going to try to tackle these issues. But I think as he struck as a part of his theme in his speech is that this is something we've got to do together as a country. And it, it can't be left to just African-Americans to solve, but it's something that we've got to focus on as a nation and really work towards doing something about. You can join our conversation tonight, 888-720-WNPR. Liz is calling from New Haven. Liz, go ahead. Hi. Um, my question is regarding the statement that um, President Biden, it's great to say that, President Biden made today, he did call out white supremacy. Um, and I understand that it's all, all comments relating to that very closely are followed by, but this country needs to become unified. I'm concerned that unity is going to take precedence over bringing people to justice who tried to overthrow our government, including high-level political officials who participated in this. And I'm wondering if you have any insights on how they can proceed by doing the right thing and going after these folks that did this and still maintain the idea of unity. Thank you. Liz, that's a great point. Velocity Q, how do you respond to Liz? Oh, I absolutely agree with her. If there is no accountability for what we saw take place at the Capitol, then you know we will never begin to really you know tackle these very difficult challenges that we have in front of us. Um, what we saw was just devastating that they went into the into the Capitol and they did the kind of damage that they did, the things that they did while they were in inside of the Capitol carrying the uh, Confederate flag. And so we know that white supremacy is a problem, but I think the caller is also speaking to, which I think will be quite challenging to do, but I think it's something that needs to be done, that there needs to be some accountability also for those people who enabled this president the last four years. One of the themes that Biden struck during this, this speech was about how people have used um, this presidency and use the, uh, you know, the, the, the pro these problems of white supremacy in order to secure and to hold on to power. And that's something that we've got to really address. And it's really a problem that the Republican Party has right now. And I think in some ways, uh, the Republican Party has got to become accountable to the American people for what it has allowed this president, this former president, to do these past four years. We have another caller, Nancy and Woodbridge. You're on. Aloha. Uh, I just, yes, you, you, he has a great deal to do, but I would add one other problem. For, for, for grandmothers and great-grandmothers of mixed children who are black and white and who have gone on to go to with in segregated and integrated schools today, uh, it's important to remember that that's one thing, but the, my daughter made one comment to me when the killings in Minnesota were, agreeing, were ha occurring, and she said, I'm scared. I'm scared because that boy 
could be my son. It would be my grandson that could have gotten killed. And that you're talking really about helped. you're talking about George Floyd, Nancy. No, I'm talking about George Floyd mm-hmm. uh, killing. My daughter lives in Moundsview, Minnesota, but she has a black son. Yeah. So it's a heck of a thing to hear from a child. Son. Indeed. He's now in his. He's now a young man. Indeed, indeed. Still, and then, and the fact that he's a little older might even make him put him in in more danger. So I mean, it's heck of a thing to hear. He, he was born in '92, so he be I don't know. I understand. I understand. Bilal, what do you say? Well, John certainly is, is someone who grew up in the in Detroit, like myself, Absolutely. and knowing that history. Um, especially in those inner ring suburbs around Detroit and the problems that we all experience whenever we cross those borders. You know, the caller is alluding to other sort of real structural problems that hopefully this president will address. And I think also things this governor needs to address with regard to problems of housing segregation and also problems of school segregation and the lack of opportunity that that creates for people of color within our society. And so the caller is very right you're very correct in her assessment of, of what is going on and, and what people are really feeling, you know, in this society. I know, you know, when I saw what happened to George Floyd, I thought to myself, that could easily have been me. And I think for many African-American males and women and children in this country, that is something that we all run through our mind whenever we have interactions with law enforcement, that, you know, one, you know, simple gesture or one movement um, could possibly end in our death, you know, and it could be something that just started with a very simple traffic uh, stop. I wanted to play another clip from President Biden's inaugural address uh, where he called on Americans to reject efforts to pit one against the other. Let's hear it. The answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like, look like you or worship the way you do or don't get their news from the same sources you do, we must end this uncivil war. To play that clip because uh, Sherry's calling in from Danbury. And Sherry, you wanted to make the point uh, that there's a, a large segment of our country who supported Donald Trump. Yes, I do. I, you know, there's so much on the plate uh, for Joe Biden and Kamala, but I want us not to lose sight of the fact that there are many dr- Trump um, Donald Trump appealed to a certain American who is white but not a supremacist, who is feeling that the American dream is out of their reach, who feels that they've been left behind. And I think, while I agree with everything that's been said so far, I think we have to include in this plan what replaces Trumpism for these people. Because if we don't provide something to replace it, they will continue to do Trumpism in whatever form is available to them. Well, my, my question to you, Sherry, is when you say we have to replace it, what what is it? When you say we, what 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 do you what, what do you it? see what, what do you see as Trumpism the that they mm-hmm. that they have in Trumpism? What what appealed to Trump? What appealed to white Americans in rural areas in um, was that no one was speaking for them. There's in, income inequality that uh, the thought that there's no jobs, when you listen to Trump's list, it's speaking to, and not that he did what he said he would do, 
you know, the the factories are still closed, the rust belt is still rusted, those things didn't change. But those were people who were saying, need those things, and we haven't gotten them, and we're going with Trump because inequality has gotten greater over the years. It hasn't gotten closer. And people who have a good job and opportunities and connection to family and maybe their church don't join white supremacist groups and storm the Capitol. Well, thank you, Sherry, for calling in and making that point here on the show. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. I wanted to bring into that. Can I interject one thing to to Sherry's response? And I'll be very quick. Be very quick. She says people with opportunities and jobs don't storm the Capitol. It's been proven. There were a lot of CEOs. There were a lot of business owners. There were a lot of some one one person and one group famously took a a, a uh, private jet to the proceedings. So, you know, there were people who were well healed who did take part in the riots. I just wanted to establish that. Go. I wanted to bring into the conversation Daniela Altamari, who's a politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Uh, Daniela, when we talk about Trumpism, people who support the former president, we can't forget there are people in our state who support Trump. I know you've spent a lot of time talking with them. Uh, what is some of your response uh, to what you've been hearing and the people you've spoken with around our state? Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Lucy. Trump is uh, is was and and is uh, popular in Connecticut. Um, he won the primary here in 2016, and he um, you know continued to get many many votes um, even though he didn't win the state. Um, so yes, he is popular, and in pockets of the state, he's extremely popular. And and I think uh, the point is correct that it's not just with the you know, the the white working class that's, you know, uh, lost their jobs at the factory. There are um, well-heeled people who like Trump. And also the Republican Party was really all in with Trump. At one point uh, during Trump's presidency, I called every town committee chair. I didn't reach all of them, but those that I did reach, none of them would go on the record and say that they were critical of, of the president, which is which is fascinating. I will say one other thing, you know, the caller from Lebanon, I forget their name, but they, they made a great point. You know, people, even Trump supporters to some degree are weary of him and weary of his very chaotic leadership style every day. You know, you, you pick up your phone first thing in the morning and check Twitter or, you know, check what your friends were posting on social media. I mean, it was it was a divisive time. It was a tumultuous time. And even some of his supporters are tired of it. We, we interviewed a lot of people over the past four years. And I can't tell you how many conversations started with, I like Trump. I love what my 401k is doing. I wish he wouldn't tweet. Or, you know, I wish he would not say some of the, you know, really inflammatory things that he says, even though I like him. So we heard that over and over again, even from Trump supporters. That's Daniela Altamari, politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Also with us tonight, Balasi Koo, associate professor of political science at the University of Hartford. Coming up, we continue to take your calls. We're going to talk about how the changes in Washington leadership will impact us here in Connecticut. You can join us too. 888-720-9677 or tweet us at WNPR.
I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Inauguration Day, a Connecticut Public Radio call-in special. Tonight, I'm joined by my colleague, John Henry Smith, and we're taking your calls at 888-720-WMPR. Uh, Kevin's calling in from Milford. Kevin, go ahead. Yes, thank you. And uh, thank you, Lucy. I listen to your show all the time, so I really appreciate you. Um, there's so many points I could make about today's uh, inauguration. It was it was wonderful, and I think it's very important to have the country reset and have this this day of celebration, even in this uh, different form. Um, but uh, the the singular point I was just going to point out is that I don't think I've ever heard in an inauguration speech a moment of silence of prayer. I thought that was really unique and special. Thank you, Kevin, uh, for uh, your comment tonight. Uh, Bilal, what do you think about uh, Kevin's comment? Yeah, you know, actually it was one of the things that I thought was quite moving. You know, clearly um, Joe Biden is Catholic. Um, He has a very deep faith in Catholicism. Um, And throughout the speech, you saw references to religion um, and, you know, in the speech. And so, Certainly, he is someone who attends church regularly, and, and I think that faith will be a part of what will drive his thinking. I think it perhaps drives his thinking about the need for unity in the nation and conciliation, and I think it really drives and motivates him as a person. And so I, I think the caller is absolutely right um, to say you know, that that was just something he had never seen before, and I think it was really a good point, a good moment. Daniela, question for you. What does the departure of Donald Trump mean for Connecticut's two political parties? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that's one we'll be debating for, uh, I don't know, <laughs> at least two more years until the governor's race starts to really heat up. Um, she liked my question. She liked my question. <laughs> it's a great question. Thank you. Um, I mean, Trump was such a big figure, larger than life in so many ways. And, you know, I think he will continue to sort of push and pull on both parties. I mean, on the Republican Party, you know, there's a there's going to be a change in leadership at the top. And so we really got to see sort of where they go. And there are many candidates, again, looking at the governor's race, who are already, you know, expressing an interest in running. So that has potential to be uh, fascinating, uh, perhaps a bit messy, big primary like they had uh two years ago. Uh, on the Democratic side, you know, I they are losing Trump, which was their favorite boogeyman for the party, Chris Murphy and, and Senator Blumenthal in particular, but really everyone in the party. Um, and so Trump is now gone. You know, Trumpism, as one of the callers suggested, will, will stay. But, you know, the Democratic Party has its own issues, uh, a lot of internal strife between, you know, the moderates and the and the liberals or the progressives. So it's going to be fascinating to watch that as well. And we'll see that play out in the presidency of Joe Biden, because he's push, going to be pushed and pulled by this, those same forces, you know, in, in Congress. Daniela, just real quick, uh, you say he was the favorite uh, favorite boogeyman for the Democratic Party, which sort of indicates a thought process that that they were kind of in some ways they were happy to have him around to have a, a, a devil to point to. Do you do you really believe that's what uh, Democrats here thought or, or were their concerns legit? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to weigh in whether their concerns were, le- were legit or not or what they actually even really thought. Well, I'll not just, were they legit, but did they do you think they felt they were legit? I, I think they did feel they were legit. But also Donald Trump was really a, a powerful um, 
tool for the Democratic Party in the state. I mean, this is, you know, generally speaking, uh, we just uh, spoke obviously about all the votes that Donald Trump did get in Connecticut, but it's a state that is, you know, of course, a blue state. So Trump was a powerful um, force for the Democrats. You know, I remember um, even during the governor's race, you know, Trump was mentioned a lot. Um, and you know what does Trump have to do with the Connecticut governor's race? Not a whole lot, but he was he was for the Democrats a very powerful symbol. And yes, I think somewhat of a boogeyman. Uh, Bilal, we hear a lot of discussion about how the Republicans will, uh, what direction they will go as a party, and again, how that will impact uh, Connecticut Republicans in our state. But I'm wondering what your take is when we think about Joe Biden as a moderate, and we you know, we have uh, different wings in the Democratic Party as well, and uh, the pressure that will be on him uh, to maybe uh, you know not uh, want to compromise uh, with the uh, people on the other side of the aisle. That's something that he wants wants to do, but there'll be pressure from maybe younger, more progressive-leaning uh, Democrats who want to see him take a, 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 a more stronger tone with them? Yeah, I think in many ways it will depend on what policies he will um, try to move and, and pressure to move within in Congress. I mean, the Democrats have control of both the House and the Senate, and so there is the potential to move some of his priorities there. Of course, he faces the reality that on the big things, for example, like the infrastructure bill, he'll need some Republican support in order to be able to move that. And so, you know, he's got he's got some work ahead of him um, in order to be able to move those big items. But the pressure from the left is going to be intense. People really want some real fundamental issues dealt with in this country. And I think they're going to be very vocal about that. Hey, but while we've only got about four minutes, just very quickly, and we'll talk about Donald Trump one more time here, uh, there's a report out tonight that he's talking about forming a new party, the so-called Patriot Party. You've got so many people out there who follow him uh, religiously. Uh, would this party, if it were to come to pass, have a chance? You know, it's very difficult to start a new political party in our system for a, a lot of different reasons. But I think, you know, one of the things that was really interesting, despite all of the failures of this presidency, he still got 10 million more votes than he got in 2016. And so clearly there are a lot of people who like this president and may follow him into a new political party. Uh, before we run out of time, I did want to point out there's been so much coverage, and I'm not sure if I missed this, but the Washington Post earlier reported that uh, that Donald Trump did leave a note for President Biden in the Oval Office. Uh, Daniela, do we know what was said on that note? Um, I'm sorry. As far as I know, I haven't, I haven't seen uh, it, what it contains, but wouldn't you just love to know? I mean, hopefully I, it's, we will. I think that's tradition, right, to some degree? Well, yep, definitely. But who knows? He he was quite the norm buster. So I think yes. the question was, would he even leave a note for Joe Biden? He did. And I, I can't wait to find out uh, what, what's on that note. I want to thank Daniela Altamari, politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Thank you for joining us, Daniela. Thank you so much. Also with us, Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Bilal, always a pleasure. Same here, and go Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks to my co-host, John Henry Smith. It was fun, John Henry. Absolutely. In our next lives, may we all be as eloquent as Amanda Gorman. What a performance. <laughs> what a performance. Matt Dwyer produced tonight's show. Thanks to our call screener tonight, Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Also, special thanks to Katie Talarski. On behalf of Connecticut Public Radio, good night. <laughs>